This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the first talk today, um, 5th of July, is going to be called The Path of Intimacy. Some of you will be familiar with the territory I cover in this talk, and some of you won't be. So... Um, I'm going to be discussing the psychological and neurobiological aspects of Zen practice. And uh, that'll continue into next fortnight. I'm interested in exploring how we incorporate um, an understanding of the relationship between the feeling of safety, the sense of self, and the regulation and dysregulation of self states. And uh, I'll be drawing more so in the next talk on <clears throat> the attachment system and the what's known as polyvagal theory. This is something that just fascinated me for a long time. One of the more confusing aspects of Zen practice is what we mean by self. So traditionally in the Japanese Zen teaching, which we inherited in the West, there's often a distinction made between what is sometimes referred to as the true self or the universal self and the ego self. Or sometimes it's referred to as the big self and the little self or the big mind and the little mind. In this tradition, the true self is being seen as like the realization of the oneness with the universe. It is the self that is never born and hence never dies. It is the self that transcends time and space and is one with all things. Which sounds very, very uh, inviting. However, I think there's something problematic about this, how this distinction is sometimes portrayed. For example, the, the ego self um, is often, I think, kind of like simplified or caricatured as the grasping, demanding me that is never satisfied. Rather than appreciating how the self, the human self, is at the apex of evolution as indeed a precious jewel. I think this parody of the self um, reflects the lack of a, a, an in-depth understanding of, of, of depth psychology in the Japanese tradition. And uh, so uh, I think it's really important to try and look with new eyes at the relationship of the interdependence between the universal self and the personal self. <clears throat> I mean, when I first read uh, Charlotte Joko Beck, I used to interpret the self-centered dream 
as this identification with the ego self, seeing the ego self as bad. And um, however, with the psychological approach to Zen practice that was introduced by my teacher Barry Majid in his first book, changed all that for me. And then after reading the work of uh, Russell Mears, who some of you are familiar with, he's a professor, uh, psychiatrist and psychotherapist based in Sydney. Um, I began to revise my understanding of what we might call personal self or personal being and the relationship with the universal self. In his, in his book, Intimacy and Alienation, um, how this, are you still hearing me? I feel like the microphone switched off. Is that still coming through? Yeah, okay. Um, in, in this book, Intimacy and Alienation, Mears writes about how the self develops within the context of the caregiving environment and achieves its potential when it has developed a number of attributes, such as continuity and coherence, the capacity for self-reflection, self-agency, and most important of all, the capacity for intimacy. Self is defined not as an entity or a thing, but as a process that is constantly in flux. Interestingly, um, Mears builds his work on the great American psychologist philosopher, William James, who was the brother of Henry James, the novelist. William James published his Principles of Psychology in 1890 and his Varieties of Religious Experience in 1902, because he was, so he was writing at the same time as Sigmund Freud, but describing the self in a very different way. So James conceived of the self as an awareness of the flow of inner life, an awareness of the flow of inner life which he called the stream of consciousness. Ring a bell? I'll just um, quote from his book, Alienation, Intimacy and Alienation. This is a quote from William James. Whatever I may be thinking of, I am always at the same time, more or less aware of myself, of my personal existence. At the same time, it is I who am aware so that the total self of me, the total self of me, being as it were duplex, partly known and partly knower, partly object and partly subject, must have two aspects discriminated in it, of which for shortness we may call one the me and the other the I. These are both different aspects of the same process. Mears uh, builds on the work of James and argues that this core sense of self is founded on a particular kind of, of language or a particular form of language that creates a form of relatedness which he calls intimate. This intimacy is personal because it is founded upon what Mears refers to as poetical memory. 
And there is what Mears calls, there's a doubleness in this state. There's the sense of being aware and the contents of awareness, which are in a constant stream of flow. One lives in the immediate present, but at the same time, one can be aware of different domains of experience, such as which belongs to another time in our lives. Some of you are probably aware that this concept of the stream of consciousness was later introduced into literature by modernist writers such as James Joyce, who wrote Ulysses in 1922, and Virginia Woolf, who published Mrs. Dalloway in 1925. Just to give you an example from Mrs. Dalloway, um, the main character, Clar Clarissa Dalloway, an upper-class 52-year-old woman married to a politician, and this is how the novel opens, the, the novel takes place in one, on one day. She decides to buy flowers herself for a party she is hosting that evening, instead of sending a servant to buy them. London is bustling and full of noise, almost five years after the end of World War I. It is a fresh mid-June morning, and Clarissa recalls one girlhood summer on her father's estate, Burton. She sees herself at 18, standing at the window, feeling as if something awful might happen. Past and present continue to intermingle as she walks to the flower shop. So I'll just give you a, a quote from that uh, opening, um, opening page of Mrs. Dalloway to give you an idea of how she writes in third person about the, the stream of consciousness. So it starts with, uh, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. For Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off the hinges. Rumpelmeyer's men were coming. And then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if it issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge. For so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Burton into the open air. How fresh, how calm. Stiller than this, of course, the air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of 18 as she was then, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen. Looking at the flowers, at the trees with the smoke winding off them and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables, was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers, was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone out on the terrace, Peter Walsh. He would be back from India one of these days, June or July, she forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings one remembered, his eyes, his pocket knife, his smile, his grumpiness, and when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was. A few sayings like this about cabbages. So it's kind of like an example of the intermingling of the present and the past as she walks out into the morning and she's taken back to this particular time in her life. And you know how many of us would experience that often with smells or music, especially songs that can evoke certain images and memories that come up from the past.
It's in the stream of consciousness of this very personal sense of intimacy that we can share with others. So, um, Mears, Russell Mears then goes on to discuss how most people do not live entirely in this zone of self. From time to time, another system interrupts and disrupts our sense of self. He identifies this as the unconscious traumatic memory system. Quote, the intrusion of this system of traumatic memories is alienating. We become alienated from our sense of self, from others, and from our environment. This, the sense of doubleness is lost, and one does not know the origin of the discomforting mood. The experience of the mood feels located in the present, yet it is actually a dissociated traumatic memory outside of our awareness that is being re-experienced. The experience of self is therefore in constant flux and can change stakes sometimes dramatically. If we are lucky, we have an ongoing sense of safety and well-being. Zazen can also help us facilitate this sense of calmness, which we'll discuss next time. However, this state can be disrupted by the traumatic memory system, where we find ourselves anxious or even panicky. If we feel our life is threatened in some way, we may even shut down completely in a severe depression or dissociate. These are both examples of movements of what Mears calls down the hierarchy of consciousness to negative or alienated self-states. Alternatively, we might experience a dramatic mystical peak experience of, say, oneness with the universe. This usually occurs during states of samadhi, of calmness, becoming one with Sazen. However, there are reports documented in the history of Zen and also in the autobiographies of contemporary spiritual teachers such as Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle of people who have experienced these mystical breakthroughs while they were in the midst of a severe depression. But normally in our Zen practice, these states are sometimes experienced as a result of a, you know, a, a number of hours sitting in, in a samadhi, which makes us more accident prone to those kind of special states. So I believe the distinction between personal self and universal self uh, needs revision, according to the findings of Western psychology. And I think there are three ways, probably more, uh, ways into this integration. The first is to draw upon our understanding of the hierarchy of consciousness and the tripartite structure of the brain. The second is to acknowledge that the self is totally dependent on the body and the environment. And the third is our understanding of what is meant by intimacy in both traditional Japanese Zen and in the work of Russell Mears. For example, Dogen has a chapter on intimacy, the language of intimacy in Ishoban Genzo. So firstly, to start with the, what's sometimes referred to as the hierarchy of consciousness, I won't go into the details of this, but to keep it simple, the human brain can be understood as a tripartite structure, being the evolutionary product of our reptilian and mammalian ancestors. About 300 million years ago, reptiles had evolved on Earth, 
Mammals and finally humans followed much later. Amazingly, the structure of our human brain still bears witness to this history. What we ended up with were arguably three interconnecting brains, each with some particular functions. The human part of the brain, the neocortex, is a very recent development in human history. The reptilian part of the brain, in contrast, is concerned with survival and it controls body functions such as breathing and digestion. The development of the mammalian brain is about the attachment system, the need to bond and care for our babies and the need to regulate our emotions. Finally, the neocortex takes care of the higher level cognitive functions such as language, reasoning and the capacity for self-reflection. What's more, our higher rational brain can easily be hijacked by these lower regions. When we feel unsafe, physically or psychologically, impulses from the reptilian brain and mammalian parts of our brain can override our higher human functions and we can behave just like a threatened animal. Now, when we experience psychological trauma, consciousness goes through a dissolution, falling down the hierarchy to these more archaic states. This often happens outside of our awareness and can be involuntary shift in state. I will explore this topic further in the next talk. But what I want to suggest is that the personal self in its calm state is on top of the hierarchy of consciousness. And hence, we need to reconceptualize what we mean in Zen when we talk about the universal self. So for example, I now understand the self-centered dream as the accumulated experience of various traumas. The more severe the trauma, the more self-centered we become. When we feel threatened, the self window narrows and we get caught in so-called negative states such as anxiety, panic, or anger, rage. Or we can also shut down or dissociate. When we are caught in these states, and this can happen quite outside our awareness, we perceive others and the world in general as threatening. They become the other. On the other hand, when we are resting calmly in Zazen, for example, we may experience a gradual or dramatic expansion of the self window. Or to use Dogen's words, we are enlightened by the 10,000 things. Secondly, we need to acknowledge that our personal self is dependent upon our universal self for our survival. This would include heart and respiratory functions and digestion all happening outside our conscious control. We are also dependent on all our organs to protect us and the environment for the source of our need for food, water and oxygen. Without this universal self that we all share equally, our unique individual personal self would never emerge. Thirdly, through the experience of intimacy, the universal and the personal meet. In both Dogen and Mies, intimacy means closeness and feeling inseparable. In our Zazen practice, we become intimate with the stars, the sound of the wind and rain, the clouds in the sky, and our personal poetical memories. Mies agrees that self is a state that includes the world around us. We speak the language of intimacy, both in artistic expressions such as poetry 
and in our body language, epitomized in Mahayai Kasper's smile, for example. So whatever we feel, think and see, we could say is you. There is no choice in the matter, no escaping you. That is what I mean by the word awakening, a sudden awareness, quite undeniable that everything you see, feel and think is you. That's a quote uh, from a, a contemporary practitioner called Robert Saltzman. Um, so you could say you are the universe, but it is a personal universe, a personal universe which is intimate to you. Your universe is totally unique and personal to you. When you die, as in the personal self dying, that intimate universe also dies. So to conclude, our personal self is the treasure that is hidden in plain view. The personal self is the window into the universal self. On the morning of his awakening, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up at the morning star and proclaimed, that's me. Our personal self is not separate from our universal self. Our personal self is what enables us to appreciate the wonder and preciousness of this life that we are, this moment. The universal self without the personal self has no capacity for self-reflection and self-appreciation, except through the prism of the personal self. It is only with the evolution of the personal self that this potential is liberated. To finish with a quote from Uchiyami Roshi, when we do Zazen, we personally experience this clearly. We become nothing other than ourselves. Though we become nothing other than ourselves alone, the whole world is contained within that self. <laughs>